Let me welcome everyone to our uh, kind of ongoing brown bag lunch series. Some of you know me, some of you may not. My name is Professor Andy Beckerman Rodeau. I'm the co-director of the Intellectual Property Law Concentration at uh, Suffolk University. And one of the things we've started doing the last couple of years, and we've start, increased the amount because of interest, is holding these brown bag luncheons and have um, practitioners or other or scholars or whatever in the area of patent law talk about various interesting topical issues. And um, there seems to be good interest in this, so we've been increasing it. And um, today our, our speaker is going to be Eric Belt, who's a partner at McCarter and English in Boston, and he's an experienced trial attorney, IP litigator. And Eric's going to be talking about the Myriad case, which some of you I'm sure are familiar with, which is pending in New York in the Southern District of New York. And it's dealing with whether or not, a rather contentious issue among some people, whether or not genes or gene-related patents are in fact patent-eligible subject matter under Section 101 of the Patent Law. I believe the case had about 13 amicus briefs filed or something in that order. Maybe even more than that. Which, remember, this is a trial court. That's rather unusual. I've heard of that happening in appellate courts, but it's rather unusual at the trial court level. Um, just by way of disclosure, Eric, along with two colleagues at McCarter in English, they did author one of the amicus briefs on behalf of the Boston Patent Law Association and um, took taking the position supporting Myriad that the gene patents are, in fact, valid patent-eligible subject matter. So with that, I, well, before I get a couple of uh, administrative things, you've got that um, form in the packet. I think it's a funny color, whatever it is, green or blue. The evaluation, I urge you at the end, please fill that out. And if you have any comments or suggestions or questions for the programs, please put it down because we've often gotten good suggestions from programs uh, from that. And if you like what we do, tell us. If you don't like it, let us know also so we can fix things. Um, the other administrative thing is we are recording this. So that means, Eric, don't wander too far from the mic. And if there are questions at the end, I assume you'll take questions. Or maybe not, I don't know. I was actually going to see if we could um, engage the audience okay. in an open discussion. I have a wireless mic here. So what I'll do is I'll bring it over to anyone who wants to speak so that it'll be recorded. Or alternatively, if they don't like to speak in the mic, you can repeat the question, just so it's on the, uh, on the recording. So with that, I'd like to welcome Eric. And I um, really want to thank him for taking time out of his busy day to uh, provide this educational opportunity for people. Thank you, Eric. Well, thank you, uh, for Professor, for uh, having me here today. And again, I'm Eric Belt. I'm a uh, patent and IP uh, trial attorney at McCarter in English. And uh, first I want to... Does this come off? There we go. First, I want to uh, get a sense of um, uh, how many people are familiar with the uh, Myriad case. All right, so we have uh, about three or four or five people. Um, let me give you some background of the case first, and then I'll tell you why I think, at least, uh, it's a very interesting case. And then um, I'll tell you what the issues are in the case and why they're controversial and how they affect uh, patent law and uh, uh, the sort of things that we do day-to-day -day in, in uh, IP. And, uh, and then uh, hopefully we can get some questions and get a discussion going about this um, uh, case because I think it's a case that has um, many sides to it and uh, people are probably in um, – uh, disagreement and at loggerheads about it. So um, 
In order to understand this case, uh, you have to understand, I think, the uh, context of what's going on in uh, patent law these days. Uh, over the last, I would say about five, six, seven years, uh, there's been an attack on patents. And uh, you'll see that in uh, a lot of the cases these days, such as uh, the Bilski case, which is probably the uh, most prominent example. Uh, that's a case in uh, basically attacking business method patents. And there have been a lot of other cases uh, over the last few years. The uh, case involving the uh, patents to the BlackBerry, uh, there was a lot of uh, discussion about uh, the reach of patents in that case, and um, uh, certainly some of the uh, recent Supreme Court cases. And basically what's happening here is that there's, uh, there are factions in the uh, economy uh, that don't like patents and would prefer to uh, see them uh, all abolished. <laughs> and then there are certainly factions who depend on patents uh, for their businesses and to protect their, uh, in, uh, their interests and their inventions. And um, generally speaking, uh, it breaks down as follows. Uh, the software industry uh, tends not to like patents. Uh, for various reasons, uh, partly because the technologies in software and high-tech move so fast uh, that uh, the people who, uh, the companies that do well are typically first movers or uh, have some other marketing or economic advantage and don't really need patents. And then you have uh, the biotech, biopharma industry on the other side of the coin uh, that really like patents for many reasons, which I'll get into. And uh, these interests and some others have sort of been butting heads um, in Congress. Uh, there's uh, been multiple uh, bills on patent reform uh, in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. And in fact, uh, I think the Senate has uh, recently just been discussing a, a new version of uh, the patent reform bill. So that's sort of the background for this case. There's all this dissension in the legal community and in the economic community as to the value of patents and whether they're good or bad for the economy. Some people say that, they're, that patents are bad for competition, that they stifle innovation, and uh, other people take exactly the opposite uh, view. So uh, I, I just want you all to keep that very basic high-level background in mind for what I'm about to tell you. The Myriad case uh, involves patents that have to do with, um, I, I guess you would call them personalized medicine inventions. These are uh, inventions that are used to uh, help diagnose uh, breast or ovarian cancer. And what the researchers uh, that formed Myriad found was that there was a correlation between certain uh, genes or mutations of genes in the body called the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes, BRCA1 and 2, um, that uh, correlate with a predisposition to uh, either breast or ovarian cancer. So based on this discovery, uh, they came up with some diagnostic tests that could be used uh, based on uh, taking a sample of uh, a woman's DNA, uh, testing to see whether it has uh, uh, the certain mutations or gene sequence uh, that would tend to correlate with uh, predisposition to cancer. And then the, uh, the uh, oncologist can uh, uh, treat it from there. Uh, 
So it's a very valuable test. Uh, I think something like 40,000 women in this country die from breast cancer every year. And obviously it's a, it's a major um, uh, health issue, and, and therefore this is a very important uh, discovery. So Myriad has um, uh, either owns or is the licensee or part owner of uh, a group of about seven patents that have to do with uh, various um, iterations of uh, this diagnostic uh, tool. And the uh, patents claim uh, both uh, certain isolated gene sequences and also methods for diagnosing um, breast cancer or, or what have you. And I've given you a handout that has some sample claims. And these are the claims of the various patents that are um, at issue in the case and that are being attacked. Now, who's doing the attacking? Um, a various organizations, health organizations, and various individuals have uh, banded together. And some of these organizations um, are uh, groups of um, uh, doctors or researchers uh, who are concerned with uh, cancer or women's health issues, and some of them are individual uh, doctors or researchers. And others of the um, challengers to these patents are women who say that uh, they have been denied the benefits of these diagnostic tests for one reason or another. So uh, particularly these women are very sympathetic plaintiffs. Uh, if you're a lawyer or studying to be a lawyer uh, and you uh, see uh, someone like that walking into your door, you're saying to yourself, yeah, this is a very sympathetic case uh, because here's a woman who has... Um, uh, either been denied the test because Myriad controls all of them and there are not, there's not competition for these kinds of tests, or because uh, her insurance does not cover the test or what have you. Um, and in some instances, the woman uh, takes a test and it, and it has a certain result, a positive or negative, and the woman wants a second opinion, and there are not other labs in the country who can perform this test because of the patents. So uh, there are also these researchers, university researchers and so forth, who uh, would like to be doing research in the area and feel that uh, they cannot do research because of the patents, that if they started to do research on the, the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 genes, Myriad uh, would uh, come after them for infringement. So uh, these individuals and these organizations have come together basically under the umbrella of the uh, ACLU. And the ACLU has provided lawyers to represent this group of uh, plaintiffs in this case. Now, why the ACLU? You think of the ACLU, you think of uh, free speech rights, and you maybe think of civil rights and individual rights. Um, uh, and you don't really think of the ACLU as being involved in patents. And I said to myself when I first saw this case, why is the ACLU um, in this area? This, this is not their uh, forte. The reason the ACLU got involved, I suspect, is uh, that um, the claim, the argument in the case, is essentially that Myriad has a monopoly on this gene. It is owning uh, these genes, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes. And it's sort of like um, saying that uh, some company can own a part of you and can control 
uh, you. It's as if saying that you have a patent on uh, kidneys. And therefore, every one of you, just by walking around and having kidneys in your body, uh, is infringing this patent. And another argument uh, that the ACLU makes is that these patents are controlling information, you know, how people think. They claim that um, some of the uh, patents are for not an invention or a chemical composition, but really information about what uh, uh, what is a correlation between uh, certain uh, mutations in your body and uh, predisposition to cancer. Uh, so they're saying, you know, really what these patents are controlling is information or even how people think. So uh, in a sense, uh, the argument is sort of like a big brother argument, that there's a, you know, an entity out there that can control your thoughts and that if a doctor even thinks uh, about this correlation between um, the uh, genes or mutations and um, and uh, cancer, uh, then uh, he or she is infringing the patent. So that, in um, sort of very high level, is is uh, one side of the uh, case. Then you have um, the other side of the case. You have Myriad, and you have the inventors of these patents and some other organizations that are involved uh, with the patents. The um, uh, I think it was maybe the University of Utah, uh, where the researchers came out of. And they're saying, we spent you know, millions and millions of dollars uh, developing this test. Before we figured this out, nobody knew about this correlation. So this is something that is very useful. Um, and we spent hundreds of millions of dollars educating uh, the, the public, particularly doctors uh, and, and researchers, of the value of these tests. In other words, you don't just sort of come into the market one day and say, here's a test, doctors, you should start prescribing this test to your patients. You have to go out and educate doctors that it's a test that is scientifically valid, that um, produces good results, and so forth. And then, of course, you have to go to the FDA and get FDA approval, and there's a lot of things you have to do before you can start uh, selling these tests. So that investment was literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and, and um, you know, why would someone make that investment unless you could have some sort of market exclusivity? Uh, this is a test that is probably relatively easy for other labs around the country or other companies to um, copy and, um, and to uh, provide for themselves. And, and therefore, if you don't have a patent on something like this that is going to give you a limited monopoly, uh, then why would you bother making this investment? And if you're not going to bother making this investment, then nobody is going to um, uh, uh, provide these uh, very um, uh, useful tests. And um, so that's sort of the argument on that side. So uh, this is a case that was filed in the summer, last summer, and uh, in uh, I think it was about August of 2009. And um, immediately, it got a lot of reaction, uh, particularly in the biotech community, uh, because uh, the biotech community obviously is concerned with these kinds of inventions, the DNA, uh, personalized medicine type of inventions. And uh, it got a lot of press, and there were a lot of briefing on it. And in particular, there were a lot of amicus briefs, which is very unusual. Uh, amicus briefs are usually reserved for... Um, appeals, appellate courts for the federal circuit in patent cases and for the Supreme Court. And just to give you a, uh, an idea, 
in the Bilski case, uh, which is the you know the hottest patent case around these days, uh, I think there were sixty-seven or sixty-nine. Uh, amicus briefs filed in the Supreme Court on the merits. And then if you add to that all the amicus briefs that were filed um, uh, to support the petition for cert, and then all the, all the uh, amicus briefs that were filed in the federal court, I mean, there were hundreds of briefs. Well, that's not unusual to have uh, a lot of interest in an appellate case, but for a trial case, I mean, this is actually the first time I've ever encountered uh, amicus briefs in, a, in, a, in the district court, and I've been practicing for almost 20 years, and I'm also the uh, co-chair of the amicus committee for the BPLA, so um, I tend to follow this, and um, uh, so this is an unusual case, and it's unusual, I think, just because there are a lot of hard feelings on, on both sides of the issues, and uh, there's been a lot of press, it's been in, on um, uh, you know, in uh, media, there's been radio coverage and TV coverage of this issue. Uh, again, very, you know, unless it's a, um, you know, like a, some uh, sensational crime or a mafia case, typically district court cases, and certainly not patent cases, uh, get this much attention. Uh, so before I, I go any further and tell you more of the interesting facts about this case, does anybody have any questions yet? Have I said anything that you don't quite understand, or what was I talking about, or use some term, or what have you. I have a question here. What was the actual claim against Myriad that would give standing for the, right. uh, you know, the plaintiffs? Well, that's a very good question, and the standing issue was actually the very first. So let me just repeat the question. Uh, the, the, the question there is, what was the basis for standing uh, for the plaintiffs, um, what, what was the claim? And the claim was basically, uh, I guess you would call it declaratory judgment. And it's a little bit unusual because there really weren't accusations of infringement. You know, in the typical uh, case in which a, uh, a declaratory judgment action is brought in a federal court, uh, you have, um, let's say, two competitors. And one competitor has a, comp a patent and sends a letter to the other saying, you had better stop using uh, my patented technology or we're going to sue you. And based on that, the uh, other competitor will file what's called a declaratory judgment action in the uh, court, in federal court, and, and the basis of the action will be to get a judge to declare that uh, the second competitor is not infringing or that the patents are invalid. Here we, d we had a, a more unusual case which is that all of these individual plaintiffs, these women, they weren't being accused of infringement. So what basis did they have to come in to court and say, we've been harmed? Uh, that was the subject of a lot of briefing very early in the case. And the, the judge in the case, Judge uh, Sweet, in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan, wrote, I think it was like an 80-page opinion on this issue. And uh, one of the things that sort of cleared the way for this case, um, I guess, would be the uh, recent um, Metamune case in um, the Supreme Court from a few years ago uh, that concerned um, uh, declaratory judgment jurisdiction in federal courts and what you would need to show uh, to get into court. It used to be able, it used to be sort of a very high threshold to get into court for a declaratory judgment. You had to show that there was an uh, actual case in controversy and that 
you were uh, feared for your life, basically, that, that there was some pressing issue, you were about to be sued, um, uh, there was some threat in litigation or whatever, and that's sort of what you had to show. These, uh, the defendants here really, I mean, I'm sorry, the plaintiffs here really could not show that. But under the Metamune case, which I think was about 2006, 2007 in uh, the Supreme Court, um, basically lowered the threshold and said, you know, anytime you have some case that is, you, you, you need a court to resolve and that it's not a purely academic exercise, you can get into court and have your rights declared. Uh, so they sort of took advantage of that to get into court here. And um, I should say one of the other defendants, and this is very interesting, is the uh, PTO, the Patent Office. And the claim against the Patent Office is, Patent Office, you can't go around issuing gene patents. It's unconstitutional. Um, and so uh, the essential argument of all of the plaintiffs was, our rights are being affected here. Uh, we either have uh, researchers who fear that they can't go out and uh, do research on the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, or we have these women who are unable to um, get proper health care because of uh, the patent monopoly. And um, the uh, patent office, you're responsible for this because you're issuing these gene patents, you issued these patents, and Myriad, you're responsible for our angst uh, because um, uh, you've... Um, taken a hard line when it comes to your patents. And, and as an aside, I'll say some of the criticism of Myriad in this case has been that Myriad has been um, uncharitable in uh, the use of its patents, uh, that it has refused to license them and has sort of gone around writing letters uh, to people saying, you know, we have these patents and don't use our technology. Um, I'll get to more of why that's probably not a good uh, or logical criticism later. So uh, have I answered your question? That was sort of the basis. And, and uh, I mean, for me, I disagree with the ruling. I don't think there was standing, at least with respect to the patent office, uh, because there had been case law saying that you cannot sue the patent office uh, for improvidently uh, issuing a patent. Uh, your, your case is against the owner of the patent, not against the patent office. And why drag uh, sort of this government agency into the mix here. Anyway, everybody's in the case. The judge saw, and I think rightly, that this is a very hot topic. There's a lot of people concerned with this issue and that it might be very hard uh, to resolve the issue absent uh, the court taking jurisdiction to be able to address these very uh, important issues. So what are the issues that are up for grab in the case? Um, the issue, the main issue is, are these patents valid? It's not, do we infringe these patents? It's, are these patents valid? And it's not even, uh, the typical validity case in a, in a patent case is, um, someone else did this before. This is not a new invention. This is old. This is obvious. Um, uh, that would be the typical case. This is not the typical case. The case here is, is the subject matter even eligible for patent protection? Do they even get to first base before you consider all the other factors of patentability? And the uh, section of the stat patent statute that controls that is Section 101. And 101 basically says, uh, Section 101 of the patent uh, law says, any uh, new or useful 
uh, machine or uh, composition of matter uh, is eligible for patent protection. Uh, basically, it's, people have thought of that as a very low threshold. Basically, if, it's, if, it's, um, if it has some utility, if it's useful, uh, it gets in the door. And the only exception to that over the years, and this is not in the statute, but this is judicially created, is products of nature, um, physical laws, things like that, cannot be the subject of patent protection. So, for example, um, Einstein discovers E equals MC squared. He can't go out and get a patent for that, even though he was a patent clerk. Um, uh, that, because that's a, that's a law of nature. It's a physical law. So you can't get a patent for that. Uh, you can't get a patent for, you know, an apple growing on a tree. That's just a product of nature. Uh, even if you were the first to discover apples, you could not get a patent on that. Uh, what you can get a patent for, and what traditionally people think about as patents, is you invent some new gadget that has, uh, you know, cogs and sprockets and gears on it. That, that, that's an easy case. Harder case is for a method of doing something. Can you go out and get a patent if you invent a new athletic move? If you are Michael Jordan and uh, you invent the uh, you know the behind the back, over the head, uh, 360 reverse slam dunk, can you get a patent on that move? Um, um, so that's sort of the harder case. And these are questions actually that the Supreme Court itself uh, has been asking in the uh, Bilski case as to what sorts of methods and, uh, are eligible for patent protection. And the reason I bring that up is because some of the patents here, and you'll see the claims, are for methods of uh, using these uh, genes to uh, correlate uh, to a predisposition to cancer, basically methods of diagnosing cancer uh, would be a, a way to say that. And what the, what the uh, plaintiffs say is, well, these methods – these aren't really eligible for patent protection because all you're doing here is, is saying taking a blood sample and having a doctor think about what that means. You know, can you, get, can you really get a patent to stop a doctor from thinking about what the correlation is between uh, the presence of some mutation in your body uh, with the predisposition to cancer? That's the issue, uh, at least according to the plaintiffs. And then the plaintiffs say on the... On the other side, on the uh, gene side of it, you can't get a, a patent on a gene itself. You are trying to um, uh, patent someone's DNA, basically. So someone just by walking down the street, having that particular gene sequence or those particular mutations is infringing the patent. Something seems wrong with that. So that, that's, that's the issue of this case. Are these patents eligible for patent for to be patents, the subject matter, is that eligible? Forget about was this new discovery. Uh, forget about whether the patent is technically uh, written the right way and has all the, you know, all the things on the checklist for patentability. It's just can you even do this? Can you even walk up to the patent office and get a patent on something like that? That's why the patent office is involved, and that's why uh, Myriad has gotten involved. Now, in the beginning of my talk, I was, I was saying, you know, there's this war uh, or big debate, uh, I would say, both in the legal community, in Congress, and in, um, uh, you know, the business world as to the value of patents. I see this case, and, and others do as well, 
as not an attack on Myriad's patents specifically, not an attack on whether you can get patents on genes or not, but it's really an attack on patents themselves because there are a lot of academicians, um, academics out there, um, hopefully not here, um, who have a rather dim view of patents. And in fact, there are professors out there in the world who teach patent law who have a rather dim view of patents and will uh, find any uh, opportunity they can to uh, badmouth patents. And of course, there are judges out there and there are politicians and there are business leaders out there who don't like patents. They say that patents are monopolies. This country was founded on the principle that there shouldn't be monopolies. There shouldn't be a monopoly on tea. There shouldn't be a monopoly on anything else because they stifle innovation, they stifle competition, they stifle research. And a lot of people see the ACLU's attack on Myriad as uh, part of this larger attack on patents. Um, and that was the subject, really, of our brief that we submitted on behalf of the Boston Patent Law Association. We wanted to say, hey, judge, not just hey, judge, but hey, business world, hey, Congress, uh, hey, uh, academia, stop and think what you're really saying here um, and, and, and get the facts right here. Patents are good. Patents are very good for us. This country was built on patents, and there's a lot of economic analysis about that. There's a lot of historical analysis and academic research to show that patents are, um, are quite vital uh, to our economy in promoting innovation, in promoting uh, research, and so forth. And I can talk about that, if you like, about how patents do that and what sort of both sides of that debate are. All right, so let me stop here for a minute. Any questions so far? Has anybody um, sort of read any of the papers in this case or followed the, the uh, uh, media coverage of it? I think I saw a few hands. Do you have uh, sort of a, a – um, what's your name? Jess. Jess, do you have sort of a position uh, on this case? Uh, yeah. I, uh, full disclosure, I work at MGH as a, uh, as a researcher. Okay. So you have, a, um, you have an interest. Uh, yeah. Um, so actually the, the idea of, of 101 I, I think is, was actually maybe the wrong uh, tack to take. I think that based upon how broad 101 seems to be, that it is patent eligible under 101. It's the same idea that you cannot patent electricity, but you could patent things to get electricity from a you know, generator to a home or into a light bulb, right? The light right. bulb could actually be uh, patentable. Um, but it's actually the enablement of, of, the, of what they're claiming uh, that, is, that is probably at issue. And, and I'm... I'm willing to, to hold off this, this line of questioning until, until maybe you address that further on into your into Well, we your can talk. address that right now. I think that's a really good observation. Um, and um, uh, you're not the only one to have something like that. A lot of people say, well, this isn't really a, a question about subject matter eligibility. In fact, a lot of people are saying that in the Bilski case, and a lot of people said that in – the LabCorp case and the Prometheus case. These are a lot of other cases. Exactly 
the same, I think. Then have to, you yeah. know, these are other cases that have to do with 101 and what's covered under patent law and what isn't. Um, uh, generally, the argument goes like this. Um, let's get everything, uh, unless it's just such an extreme thing like you're, you're patenting a physical law or an equation uh, or, you know, an apple growing on a tree, let's bring everything into the door. Let's be very inclusive. And the reason you want to do that is um, we don't know today what the next new technology is going to be. I'll give you an example. In the uh, late 1700s, when the first Patent Act was uh, drafted, and it was drafted by uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the first patent commissioner, um, also wrote the Declaration of Independence, so he knew a little bit about how the government worked back then. Um, the, what, was, what were the uh, technologies uh, back then? Technologies were uh, probably things like compasses for um, uh, ships that crossed the Atlantic and sextants, things like that, and plows to plow the, the land, um, uh, pots to smelt uh, pig iron in. Um, I think that was actually the first patent. Um, uh, they were uh, things that uh, Ben Franklin was inventing. You know, think about that kind of technology. The, that was the cutting edge. That was high tech back then. Then in the 1800s, you have things like the uh, telegraph. Totally new. It's not, um, you know, it really works based on um, electrical signals and um, not on steam power, or on gears, or on a wheel churning to power a, a, a flour mill. Um, so uh, people had a problem with the, the telegraph back in the 1850s, and there was a, a Supreme Court case as to whether Morse could get a patent on the telegraph. And by the way, um, I should uh, step aside for one second and say, all those great inventions that you learned about in history, the telegraph, the telephone, uh, the airplane, the light bulb, all of that stuff uh, was, uh, had patents covering them. And their inventors uh, were smart enough to go to the patent office and get patents. And that's why you heard about um, Alexander Graham Bell as the inventor of the telephone, which I think happened right down the street, and uh, not the other guy. And there was a whole book that came out a couple years ago about basically another guy invented the telephone right at the same time. But it was Bell who, who uh, won the war in the patent office to get the patent for it um, and uh, proved that he was the first inventor. So that's why you heard about him. And why you hear about Thomas Edison is because he retained my firm, McCarter and English, um, 100 years ago to go out and get patents for him. Uh, McCarter and English being a New Jersey-based firm where Edison was. And um, why you hear about Morse and not some other guy who also invented the telegraph, for all I know, is because they went out and got patents. So all these uh, very cool inventions that sort of are in the history books were all the subject of patents. And the Morse case, and, uh, in particular, involved a very similar question. Can you get – this is a whole new technology for us, the court would say. Can you even get a patent on the signals that are – going across the country. Uh, and basically what the court said was, well, in some instances you can, and in some, some other in instances you cannot. Um, but going back to my original thought here, it, the point I'm making is when the patent laws were written, uh, technology was uh, very simple. Uh, 
based on what we think of technology today, the, you know, the transistor and the semiconductor and uh, all these great uh, marvels of the 21st century uh, were uh, hundreds of years away. And so what some people would say is when you think about patent laws, you have to think about it very organically and flexibly. You can't say patents only will cover this gadget that sits on a table and has gears that spin. You have to be able to think 100 years down the road because if you don't, you're going to um, stifle innovation. You're, 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 you're not going to give the necessary encouragement to inventors to go out and invent something that uses just you know, pure energy to move things around. Uh, that uses um, you know, whatever molecules to do calculations in, in a computer, nanotechnology or whatever. So um, the, the point, going back to your point, is let's have uh, patent law, the, the door to get into the patent office, be very wide and have a very low threshold. And let's bring everything in. And then the way we're going to sort it out about whether you get a patent or not is we're going to go to more traditional methods. We're going to say, is this something that's new? Did someone else discover it before you? Is it obvious? Uh, does it have the proper written description and enablement? Um, is it useful? Uh, it, it, does it have utility? Um, it, it, those are the, the issues that should be used to sort out good patents from uh, bad patents or whether you get a patent or not. Not, you know, is this some new technology that we've never heard of before? And certainly personalized medicine inventions, you know, were, weren't heard of 50 years ago, and they only really started to come into play maybe 25 years ago or 20 years ago. Right. And so my, my argument is that the correlation that, was, that originally represented the, the patent that went into this was not a very strong statistical correlation and actually does not really affect a huge number of people that are suffering from breast cancer. It's a very small number of people that are actually, uh, that actually get this mutation. I mean, the HER2 gene is much more widely, uh, is much common, uh, more common to, um, to causing breast cancer than the BRCA1 or 2 genes. And so the statistical correlation by which they were able to uh, show that they were enabling this, uh, this correlation um, and then also the utility of how many people is this actually covering, they actually found the deletions in uh, subsets of, of Mormon families and looking at, at very large extended pedigrees. And so although it was a very strong signal, uh, in in those pedigrees, uh, these the uh, error bars by which you could statistically measure the correlation were huge, and so I'm I'm thinking that what seems to be a, a larger issue in personalized medicine and in the patent office is actually the understanding of statistical properties and how those natural laws need to be obeyed in order to grant patentability from that standpoint. So are you basically saying that if um, the invention is not um, very efficient or uh, not very valuable because there are better ways to do it, you shouldn't get a patent on it? Well, I think that you should get a patent on what you are precisely claiming, right? I can, I can claim a patent on a light bulb that uh, flickers all the time. Well... If that patent covers every single light bulb that will be created for the next 20 years, 
then that does seem to stifle innovation. Now, you were saying that, um, and I saw a question over there, but I'll, I'll get to you. Um, you were saying that there was another gene correlation that actually had a better statistical uh, correlation to uh, cancer than the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes? Correct. Okay, so these claims aren't claiming that other um, statistical correlation. They're not claiming the other isolated genes. They're just focusing on just this light bulb, not a different kind of light bulb. Right, but there are other ways. Uh, let's, let's, let me clarify the, the light bulb comparison briefly. Um, there are other ways to illuminate, uh, i.e., that would be the difference between BRC1 and, 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 uh, and HER2. Uh, in, the, in my example, uh, BRC1 uh, and 2 would be a very dim flickering light bulb, and their, their process by which they actually can um, pull the sequence out, isolate it, and test for it, uh, I think are, were fairly weak initially statistically. And so without being able to take uh, more measurements and be able yeah. to conduct more rigorous research, it's very hard to uh, tell exactly how strong or weak that correlation really is. Okay, so I think basically your argument is that um, part of whether you get a patent or not should be judged on what is the value of the underlying invention. And I think that might not be um, uh, the broadest way to look at it because if you, and I'll get, I'll get. You're misunderstanding what he's saying. Yeah. He's saying that this patent stifles for further research that would allow them to go ahead and investigate the better. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, roughly. Go ahead and clarify yourself. Well, the, uh, the issue with personalized medicine yeah. is, is more of a statistical one. The idea of personalized medicine only comes from the idea of taking a very large group of people and being able to dissect their individual phenotypes out into principal components and being able to do linear regression on multivariate models in order to actually come up with sound statistical models that apply to the very specific uh, feature that you're actually looking to correlate. And without actually having very standardized methods for those statistical correlations, you'll keep running into issues like this. Okay. And it'll only get worse as we move forward. Well, um, I can't... Uh, address the science behind that, but let me address the but that, patent but law that's, behind but it. That's exactly what, but that's exactly what this is essentially about, is it, right. it, this is science, and, and patents come from science well, at this point. Well, um, I would disagree there. Patents are legal documents, um, and um, patents are not scientific documents. Patents are not technical documents. They concern technology in many cases. Uh, and they speak to those of ordinary skill in the particular technology. But a patent is really uh, something else. A patent is a legal document, and it's talking about um, what conceptually does, uh, did someone think about, did, did someone invent or discover. Um, and, uh, it's, but it's not like a manufacturing document or a manufacturing specification for how to uh, – for every different way you could have a commercial embodiment of it. 
Um, it's more like a uh, patent is more like a deed to uh, a house or to land. Um, it's not. It's it's setting out sort of the boundaries of what you've invented, and everything else on the outside is 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 um, public domain for everybody else. Um, and the way that patent law would look at your question, your issue, is as follows. Um, there were many patents for flying uh, machines before the Wright brothers came along. Um, uh, the reason you hear about the Wright brothers is that they were the first to figure out how to make it work in a, a flying machine work in a, uh, you know, sort of a, an efficient or commercially viable way. Um, but that doesn't mean that those other patents for flying machines before the Wright brothers had value. Uh, they do have value because uh, they're sort of the disclosure of an invention, even if it has minimal utility, um, that future inventors can rely on to figure out, okay, where did other people, what did they discover that uh, worked and what did they discover that didn't work? So that when you come along and you want to invent the next generation of tests for breast cancer, um, you can go back to the myriad patents and the disclosure that they contain. And by the way, these patents are like 106 pages thick. And uh, it's a, a very long gene sequence uh, that's spelled out there. And you know, there's some other disclosure in the patents. And, and when you're a researcher, you can go back to these patents and say, OK, here's what someone else did. I don't think they work so well, so I can go off and invent the, the next generation of thing by making these improvements and so forth. But at least I know, based on the patents, what they did right and what they did wrong, and I won't make their mistakes. So these patents, at least from a legal point of view, have that value. Now, you had a question you've been waiting to ask. Great. mutation, gene mutations, whether it's BRCA1 or HER2, but when you have HER2, it's much more common. If you can isolate down even further to BRCA1 and see if they have that mutation, well, therefore you can figure out, well, can you use some sort of chemotherapy treatment based upon that that you know will work, and you'll know some that don't work, so you don't waste the patient's time, people's money, and then also give patients chemotherapy treatment that's just never going to work and fix it. So when you're dealing with a certain Mormon population, it's the same, I think in Boston it was a big record, was a big thing because it was a high among Jewish population as well. So statistical analysis, you've actually just isolated a certain group of people who will better be more or less affected by this cancer mutation, not because it's better or worse than her too, it's just another way of looking at it and being able to diagnose and therefore treat. And then at the same thing, you can get other genes that may be very similar or just have a bit of a difference. So it's not stifling, it's therefore people are looking for another way around and saying, well, if the scavenging works, well, what else works? And what else can come down for personalized medication? So. Okay, right here. Um, yeah, I, I think, I recall being at a presentation by one of my colleagues here at, at Suffolk 
about five or seven years ago, Mike Rustad. And what I understood from him at that point, he was presenting a, a program about the neem tree oil and the patentability of that, but he also was talking about gene patents just as a sort of a side point. What I understood at that point is what I'm seeing sort of come to a head here in the Myriad case, and that was the idea, and, and he may be one of the academics you're talking about, um, but what I understood was not uh, that patents per se were a problem, but that patents were perhaps overreaching in some cases and causing problems. And that is, in this case, perhaps, the argument not that patents or all the patent is wrong or causing a problem, but that this idea of patent as much as you can get in the door and as low a threshold as possible is what's going to cause the problem for other researchers to be able to go ahead and pursue their research. Um, patenting um, cultural property of native peoples, patenting genetic material, patenting, um, in spite of what you said about apples, uh, you know, uh, neem tree oil, uh, material like that, when you get that broad and the patent office and patent lawyers who aren't thinking carefully about the collateral effects of the patents that they're doing and how broadly they're drawing them, that's what I think is causing the, the huge number of, of um, amicus briefs that you're seeing in here. Yeah. And it's not just um, you know, all the women who are worried about breast cancer uh, in this particular case. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. And as I said, um, uh, some of the plaintiffs here are researchers or um, uh, various uh, health organizations or research organizations that are concerned that uh, the existence of these patents will prevent them from doing research in this area. Um, and, and I, here's here's what the what I think the counter and, and by the way this is also an argument that comes up in the Bilski case and that came up in uh, a couple other uh, high profile cases Prometheus versus Mayo Clinic and uh, LabCorp uh, LabCorp against uh, Metabolite uh, which were uh, cases over the last few years involving personalized medicine inventions and whether they were eligible for uh, patent protection. And, uh, and I think that the um, one answer to your question, uh, well, there are two answers. Uh, one answer is, well, it's not exactly what the ACLU uh, plaintiffs are arguing. They are actually, if you read their papers, do actually make a broader attack on patents, and, and uh, not just Myriad's patents, but kind of the role of patents in society in general. Uh, but I hear your point uh, that that um, uh, it's only just these particular patents that were maybe an overreach. And so the second answer is, well, are they really an overreach or not? And to figure that out, you really have to look at 
uh, the most important thing that you have to look at in any patent case, which are the claims of the patent. And I think that there's a misconception here in the case, and certainly there was a misconception in the popular media and press about uh, what these patents cover. The patents don't cover the genes themselves. They don't cover the gene sequences as you're walking around uh, and so forth. What they're covering really is new and practical applications of the genes. Um, and, and it's that that the law says that you can get a patent on. You can't get a patent on the gene itself, but you could go out if, if you can have, find some way to make the gene useful or an isolated version of it useful or any natural product useful in a way that it couldn't be useful to society before because you've purified it, you've isolated it, or you've done something else to it to make it available for public consumption, then you should be able to get a patent for that because that is uh, something that contributes to uh, society. So what I would say is these researchers who are having um, angina about these patents have to go back and look at the claims. Maybe they hire me and I can help them. Um, and uh, see, you know, do these claims really read on what they're doing? What I mean by that is um, here's how you figure out whether you're infringing a patent or not. You don't sort of look at the title of the patent. You don't look at the first couple of pages of the patent and figure out is that what you're doing. You don't look at the drawings or the figures in the patent. You go to the end of the patent. You start at the end and you read backwards. And you look at the numbered paragraphs at the end of a patent. Those are the claims. And uh, the claims are, uh, some people think of claims as their own little patents. And each claim, which is basically a one long sentence, uh, says, uh, here, is what, uh, here is the definition of this invention. Here are the, uh, the meets and bounds, as the court said in the Markman case of the invention. And you say, uh, so a typical claim might be something like this. Um, a, um, a gadget for uh, controlling the speed of a bicycle uh, consisting of or comprising um, a sprocket, a cog, a chain, and a mechanism for uh, shifting the uh, chain from one sprocket to the other. Uh, a derailleur. Um, and um, let's say you come up with uh, a way of controlling the speed of a bicycle that has nothing to do with cogs and sprockets and gears and chains and, and derailers, but some other completely different thing. That would not be covered by this patent, this claim, because you don't have a gear or a sprocket or a cog or what have you or a chain. You've done it in some other not a mechanical engineer, so I couldn't tell you how to do it, but you, let's say you did it. You did it just through transistors, let's say. Um, and I think what some of the people in the, that are involved in the Myriad case are saying is uh, Myriad went out and got patents on uh, diagnosing cancer or on using genes or on these particular genes, uh, but that's not right. They only got a patent on, that have claims that are directed to um, the particular configuration of, let's say, 
gears and cogs and sprockets. So if you're a researcher at uh, MGH and uh, you want to do research on um, BRCA1 and its correlation to cancer or its correlation to diabetes or something else, um, then there's probably a way for you to do that so long as you hold the claim up on the wall and you say, well, I didn't have that element of the claim and I didn't have this element of the claim. So you can go do that. And there's a value in doing that. And the value in this whole process of looking at a patent claim and saying, here's a way to do that same thing or a better version of that thing, but without infringing the patent, that's called designing around. And what the case law says, what the courts say, and what, what, what um, uh, academics say um, is designing around is a good thing because uh, it forces companies and individuals to find new ways to do something. And if you didn't have the threat of the patent, then maybe they would take the easy way out or the lazy way and just do it and just copy what has come before. But patents sort of force people to go out and find a better way to do something that doesn't infringe the patent. So if you think that there's a better way to diagnose uh, breast cancer by using this other gene or maybe there's you know, some other uh, thing that you can measure in the blood or in the urine or something uh, that would die, have a better correlation statistically, knock yourself out. Go and do it. That's why you have patents. Um, Professor? I'm one of those academics who writes about patent law, but I'm, I'm not anti-patent. Good. <laughs> I used to be a patent lawyer and engineer, but I, I think what gets lost in the discussion is that the pro-patent people and the anti-patent people tend to both be wrong. The anti-patent people focus on, oh, it stifles uh, innovation. Yes, patents do to some extent. The people that say it promotes innovation, yeah, it does. Patent law is a balance. You're always going to have a certain amount of innovation is stifled, but the law is designed, hopefully, or the attempt of the courts is to do it so that we have more innovation than we have stifling. But you're always going to have a certain amount of stifling. That's simply part of the balance built into the system. The, the other point you made, I think, is very valid about um, the claims. You know, for those of you who have never been a patent attorney, the claims are incomprehensible. I mean, I used to write them, <laughs> and so I know they're incomprehensible. What does the media and the public read? They read the abstract of the patent, which is the first 150 words. And as having been a patent attorney, I always wrote those so it looked like I was covering everything ever invented in the world. It doesn't have any legal significance, but that's what people read because that's comprehensible. The claims are usually a lot narrower. That said, I do think that um, my colleague, you mentioned Mike Brustad, I've been educating him a little about uh, his views <laughs> to anti-IP. But I, I do think there are some claims that do overreach, but that doesn't mean the whole system is a problem. Right. And the other thing, the final thing, which is interesting, I think, is that the courts have expanded 101 subject matter dramatically. But at the same time, there's other Supreme Court cases like KSR that have later on taken the other requirements and made them stricter. So you can easily and more easily get in the door, but it's hard to get out the other side now. So it's not as open-ended as I think people think. But I, I do think people have to keep in mind that it's a balance. And yeah. That, yeah, there's some stiflement of um, doing things, but that's balanced against the benefits that we get. Hi, Greg Gersten, Zang Lando, and Anastasi. Um, just got a question. With regard to ACLU's uh, policy argument about not, uh, you shouldn't allow patents to be made on part of a person, 
Um, what my Latin, sorry, Myriad's claiming is uh, an isolated DNA sequence, and how do they address that that isolated DNA sequence never actually is present in a person? Well, here's Myriad's argument. Let me see if I can summarize it. First of all, I know your firm well. You have very fine people over there. Um, uh, here's what Myriad would say. Um, the claim, and, and if you, you look at, um, let's say, claim, uh, claim two of the uh, 282 patent, claim one and two, actually, um, it says an isolated DNA coding for a uh, BRCA1 polypeptide, said polypeptide having a particular uh, gene sequence, amino acid sequence. And that sequence is spelled out in great detail in hundreds of pages in the, um, in the patent. And the sequence, just for the non-scientific people here, are um, strings of four letters uh, that um, C, G, T, and what's the other one? A. A. Thank you. Uh, and, and this is the way that um, uh, geneticists and scientists um, describe uh, genes. And um, what, what um, Myriad would say about a claim like this is we're not um, patenting DNA itself as it exists in your body. We're not patenting the BRCA1 gene as it exists in your body. We're taking a isolated or purified version of it that's extracted from the body. And there are scientific reasons that that is something that is different from what actually in, uh, exists in your body. Now, as the scientists here, you may agree or disagree with that. Maybe you can help us understand the science better. But as I understand it, um, part of, a, part of the, the gene um, has uh, their um, components of it uh, called exons and introns. And when you isolate the gene and take it out of the body, you are removing the introns. Is that right? That's right. Uh, so right away, um, right away, the chemistry has been changed. Um, and then uh, what you need to do basically is take what's called a cDNA, uh, which is a complementary uh, DNA, uh, in order to have something that's useful. And when you do that, you're, you're not just making an exact copy of a gene, but you're also changing um, the sugars that are involved in the uh, genes, um, and, and you're doing some other things that change the chemical composition. And really what genes are are a collection of chemicals, basically, of organic chemicals, sugars and amino acids and so forth. Um, and so why shouldn't you treat a gene just the same way as, um, let's say, DuPont comes up with a new chemical that is used to make you know, nylon uh, or something? Uh, why shouldn't a gene, albeit... You know, it's a more complex chemical composition, uh, be treated just like uh, any other chemical composition that's eligible for subject matter. That's part of uh, Myriad's argument in this case. And there was some, legally speaking, there's a lot of good case law out there that says that when you isolate something from nature or purify it in some way, that you change its properties somehow, you make it different in kind. Or you, or you make it available for use that it, in a way that couldn't be used before, uh, then you have something that's patent uh, eligible. 
And those cases are, and they go back uh, 100 years uh, to uh, a case uh, called um, Park Davis. And uh, that's a, a case that I think was Judge Learned Hand uh, wrote, and it involved uh, purified adrenaline. Uh, the adrenaline was removed from the gland, and it was purified, and the court said, well, that's okay. You can get a patent on that. And then there have been other cases since. There was a uh, case, um, I think, Merck v. Uh, Olin Matheson uh, that involved uh, purification of B12. Go ahead. Does, uh, does adrenaline work um, on, on every single person? I, I don't know because I'm not a doctor or a you know, uh, scientist, biologist. Yes, it, it does. So what the, the difference is between the Park case, yeah. is, is, and it's not a case about necessarily isolation. Again. It's about the, at the end of the day, they got a patent on a correlation, on a statistical correlation, which can definitely help inform as to course of treatment and other, other wonderful mechanisms, my argument at the end of the day is that the threshold by which anyone can get a patent on a statistical correlation, finding some sort of utility to the actual gene, to the population at large that that gene might be affecting, has to have a certain threshold. And that threshold, I don't think, has been met in this case. And are you saying that the threshold hasn't been met because the statistical correlation is not now, two great years, enough? Two years down the road, if they had, uh, if they had actually done uh, more research and actually had uh, many more subjects in order for their uh, claims to uh, be met with much more statistical rigor, um, it, I think that, that that presents a different argument and some of these other, other pieces come into play. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's very hard uh, from an isolation standpoint to uh, – there are good, good arguments on, on, on both sides as to whether or not that holds water. I, I personally think it does, but, right. um, but I know that there are good arguments otherwise. But at the end of the day, again, it's a, statist- a statistical issue that I think is going to keep popping up again and again and again. Right. What is the threshold by which I can get a patent on a correlation? Because – what they are claiming as far as isolation is very obvious. It, it was in practice every single lab across the country at the time. Okay. So uh, it's a good point, and um, <clears throat> I think the way you can answer it is as follows. Um, you're basically saying that to get in the door to the patent office, to have something that is eligible, it has to meet um, the... Uh, rigor of a uh, peer-reviewed procedure or something from a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Uh, In in other words, uh, a doctor uh, might not um, use this procedure or this diagnosis unless it were reviewed in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine uh, by the doctor's peers and and it met certain scientific or um, uh, statistical uh, results, but that's not the threshold for patent eligibility. It's not peer review. Uh, it's not whether the the invention 
is going to be commercially viable or not or, or have the greatest effect. It's, it's simply, is this a, a new contribution? Your second point, I think, is the more valid point, which is if this is um, what, what Myriad has claimed is obvious because uh, people like you were doing this in the lab 15 years ago, well, that would be a valid basis for attacking these patents, uh, or at least the claims that uh, cover the correlations. And don't forget, not all the claims do. Some of the claims are for the isolated DNA, and some of the claims do this and that. The correlation wasn't, wasn't obvious. Their methodology for getting the correlation was obvious. However, the correlation was not very statistically sound at the time. Right, and, and, and I guess my... Uh, Come back to that is you're confusing, I think, uh, the, the, the standards that would be used in a peer review um, scientific journal or uh, with patent law, and the two aren't necessarily the same. All right, we have an, uh, other uh, questions right here. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I just want to, I'd like to go to the public policy issue and expand on that, but let's say. Uh, Myriad had a very weak correlation, and in order to determine whether this was really a valuable diagnostic test, other people needed to test the broader population. Well, Myriad might not want that to happen. So they say, everybody else stop their, their testing because I can make a lot more money before everybody shows that this is not a good correlation. It doesn't work. Um, and, and, and from that standpoint, maybe there's a lot of extra cost and inefficiency in the system for tests that maybe doctors are prescribing defensively that maybe if they had had the opportunity to have someone else do an independent test would find that it was uh, a bad test. But let me just ask one more question, and that is, to what extent do we go in patent law? At what level of importance to society is it still okay to exclude people from practicing an invention? And, and let me go from the, the largest to the, to the smallest. If there was some patented invention that was so crucially important to all of society and the inventor decided, no, nobody can practice it. Or if we go the, to the other way and say, I have patented a diagnostic regime for your genome, you as an individual, and this is your treatment. You can come to me or not to have the, the treatment. But I've, I've isolated your genome, your individual as a person. Would that be patentable? All right, so there were, I think, three or four questions there. Let me see if I can unwind them. Um, if you were in a deposition, I would object uh, to uh, the form of the question. Which one do you want me to answer? Um, let me, let me uh, see if I can um, answer it this way. Uh, let's take the hypothetical of uh, someone uh, tomorrow uh, invents, um, you know, this very cool new drug, and anybody who, uh, any obese person who takes this would automatically, uh, just by walking around, lose weight. And uh, with that, uh, or you could take it and not become obese, and therefore you could go out and drink all the Coca-Cola you wanted, and you wouldn't have to have a soda tax, and all of the uh, cookies, by the way, the cookies are great, and you could have that whole plate of cookies and not get fat. Well, obviously, 
that would be really useful and important to society, especially given all the statistics about uh, obesity, obesity in children, and correlation with diabetes and heart failure and so forth. Um, and let's say this inventor says nobody gets to use it because I got a patent on it. The patent office gave me this great patent, and it's very broad, and it covers any sort of form of this drug, the salts of the drug and the method of um, uh, dosing it and so forth and so on. And um, here would be my answer. This, again, is from um, patent theory, I should say. Uh, a patent monopoly is not forever. It's for 20 years from the date of filing. Um, it's a limited monopoly, and that is part of the balance um, uh, that we were discussing earlier. Uh, that is something that the founding fathers uh, debated very carefully because, don't forget, they came out of a uh, system in which uh, England uh, was uh, very liberal in granting monopolies, and they hated it. Uh, for their own economic interests, you know, the, the monopoly on the tea trade and so forth and so on. So um, we had a revolution, and, and part of that revolution was, a, was a, a sort of uh, motivated by economic reasons. And so the founding fathers came out of that. But then they also realized, and Thomas Jefferson said, that um, ingenuity should be uh, liberally encouraged. And they realized that, practically speaking, in our system, in the free market, uh, the way you do that is through a grant of this limited monopoly for rights. So maybe that means that for the next 17 years, people can't use that drug. But afterwards, when the patent expires, everybody gets to go out and use that drug. And furthermore, because this patent has been published to the world, researchers can figure out, see the disclosure of the patent, assuming that the disclosure disclose the best mode and so forth, and go and figure out ways to design around and maybe make even a better drug that works even better with fewer side effects to um, uh, preventing obesity. So um, th that's maybe one way to answer the question. Um, what about the individualization? Let's, let's say that you patented my genome. Mm -hmm. well, let's say you patented the isolated, my isolated genome so that only you could treat my illness for the next 20 years. Okay. So um, here's the way I would answer that. So the question again was, what if I, in the middle of the night while he was sleeping, I came and took a blood sample, and I ran it through all kinds of DNA processing machines, and I figured out how to isolate his entire genome of, how many genes are in a genome? Millions? We don't know yet. All right. So um, uh, what I would say is this. I have done uh, some service to uh, society uh, because I have uh, figured out how to take um, your – I've isolated it. And, of course, in the process of isolating it, I've now made it available for use. And just when it was walking around in your body, it was never available for use before. So now I have – um, something that's useful. It's useful to you in particular, uh, but let's say, let's expand that a little bit, and I figured out some way to isolate everybody's genome so that I could go and say, okay, um, you know, um, uh, you're going to um, develop diabetes, and you're, God forbid, and you're going to develop uh, X disease and so forth. So I have this sort of great map of everybody's predisposition to stuff. 
um, I've done something that's really useful. And that's really the definition of patent law, which is uh, can I make something that is uh, useful uh, to society um, that was uh, not available before and was not known before? That's sort of the, the threshold question. So I would say that's a good patent. Someone else can come along and say, I've got something else that's better than his patent. Um, don't go to Belt. Come to me because I've, got, I've, I've figured out a different way to diagnose you that doesn't infringe his patent, and it's better and it's cheaper. Okay, we have a... Gary, one answer to your question is since two, about 2006 in the eBay case, a patent owner no longer has the right to tell people automatically they can't practice the patent. The eBay case said it's up to the discretion of the trial judge, and they can say people can freely infringe, and we're going to set a reasonable royalty rate. And so in many cases, people can infringe, and they just pay for it. Prior to the eBay case, the answer to your question would be different, but now people can freely practice inventions in many cases. It's a good point, which is that a patent, I can't just show up at your door, wave a patent in your face, and say you can't do this. It's not like having a warrant and having the sheriff show up. I've got to go to court. A patent is nothing but a ticket to go into court to sue somebody. Um, so unless I actually decide to come and sue you. In this case, in Myriad, that that's the visceral issue that people are concerned about as, as, as medicine, et cetera, becomes more personalized, whether that's what the worry is. It's, it's absolutely what the worry is. It's absolutely part of the ACLU's argument that uh, the visceral reaction is that someone can sort of own your DNA, your, your genome, uh, and therefore control how you can be treated and so forth. That, that is absolutely the emotional appeal on that side. And, and I don't want to discount that um, because um, you know, certainly from my perspective as a trial attorney, you want to have that emotional appeal. And, um, and, and it's a little tougher sometimes to find in a patent case one big company uh, A is suing big company, big company B, uh, and there's not like, a, you know, uh, someone who's been injured or there's not sort of a, a sensational aspect to it. Um, so uh, that is a very important part of the case. And I think part of the comeback that you would hear Myriad argue is, well, wait a minute. Uh, maybe you, uh, plaintiff A, uh, cannot take advantage of this. But because we invested $200 million in educating the public as to the value of these patents, 400,000 other women have been able to benefit uh, from this lab test, and uh, because of uh, finding the statistical correlation, they've been able to go out and seek uh, treatment, um, maybe a preventive treatment to uh, avoid uh, the cancer. Um, so um, that's that, I think, is uh, really an important part, is one of my criticisms of the arguments that the ACLU has made is um, it's, it was hard for the ACLU to avoid, but, you know, they're focusing on these sort of limited anecdotal-ish uh, uh, instances of someone who is being affected adversely by a patent and weren't taking into consideration the hundreds of thousands of other people who did benefit from the patents because of this invention. So, again, 
uh, as, as we heard from the professor, um, it's a balance. Some people on the edges might be affected, uh, but overall, the patent law is encouraging the greater good. It's sort of like a, uh, if you ever took uh, economics in college in, or uh, maybe philosophy, I think it was philosophy, and you read John Stuart Mill, who came out with this theory of uh, utility, which is what is sort of the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That's kind of part of the theory behind patent law, is what is the greatest good. I mean, yeah, some people will be shut out from being able to practice a particular invention, but overall and over time and in the course of history, more people will benefit from that particular patent and from patent laws overall. Um, following up on my previous question, uh, seeing as Maria is claiming the isolated DNA sequence um, of you know, whatever, um, and that genes invariably have lots of introns and you know, they're what you call genetic garbage in them, um, how can ACLU uh, be making the argument that uh, Myriad is claim, uh, claiming part of a person that a, anyone walking down the street will be infringing their patent if they happen to have this gene? Uh, let us say um, the license of a well-seasoned and very good trial attorney on the other side. <laughs> uh, you need to have uh, some of that emotional uh, appeal. I think it's wrong. I, I think it's, it's absolutely uh, the wrong argument um, because it is, um, uh, it's a misconception as to what was actually being patented here, I think, or was being claimed and it's like reading the first 150 words of the patent and not skipping to the end um, and not really figuring out what the patent is about. So you're absolutely correct. This has been a great discussion. Anybody else have another view? Have a question? What were, who were the women? The, was there a target, um, the women that were part of the ACLU's um, group? Did they want to get this test and couldn't because they were part of a different population that wouldn't be necessarily have this mutation? Or, or uh, yes, that's all described in the paper. So, uh, for example, uh, there was one woman who um, could not get the test because... Um, although her insurance company said that it would pay for this test. And it's an expensive test. It's like $3,000. Um, and the insurance company said it would cover it, but then uh, Myriad said we're not going to take uh, insurance from that company, that particular company. So that was one of the individuals. Another individual wanted to – had the test, had it done, got some results, and wanted a second opinion from a different lab – and uh, couldn't get one because Myriad is the only lab in the country. And then there was a third woman. I want to say that she was Asian uh, or Pacific Islander or some other, you know, some subsection of the population uh, in which maybe there was a, a less good statistical correlation uh, and, uh, and therefore had a problem with it because of that. Um, either... Um, that's right, and I think that was the case. And sometimes, when you get the test back, it's my understanding that uh, you either get you know positive or a negative, or there was a third possibility, which was the test would come back and say inconclusive. 
And uh, so uh, one woman who had that inconclusive test, I think, was one of the plaintiffs. Uh, other questions? All right, so uh, let's see. We've covered, I think, uh, the policy arguments. There's the argument about are patents good or are they not good, generally speaking. There's the arguments about whether gene patents in particular are good, and you have people on both sides of that debate. Uh, there were a lot of other interesting legal issues in this case, such as standing. Could these people even come up into court and say, we're affected by these patents? And that was, I think, an interesting issue uh, that also got some press as well. Um, and then, of course, there are the arguments on uh, either side. There are these people who've been affected. They've clearly been affected. They've been, um, they, they desire to have these tests or they desire to be able to go out and do research free from uh, interference with Myriad. And then there's people on the other side of the case who say Myriad invested all this money. They came up with this test to begin with. Why shouldn't they be able to uh, reap the rewards uh, for a limited period of time from their investment. So those are the arguments in uh, – and then the, the last uh, issue I think we discussed are looking at the claims themselves. Can you get a patent? Is it eligible to get a patent for um, uh, isolated DNA? And why should you be able to do that under patent law? And why should you be able to get a uh, patent for um, – a method for diagnosing uh, breast cancer or ovarian cancer that merely consists of uh, taking a look at uh, someone's gene sequence and thinking about it in ACLU's version or in Myriad's version, um, taking an isolated uh, DNA sample and correlating it and doing this and this and this to it to figure out if there is that statistical um, predisposition. So those are uh, the very interesting issues, and I think everybody here had some really good observations and questions about that. Any other, any other questions? Any other aspects of the case you'd like to hear about? Okay, I have a question. I'm just uh, curious about... Uh, the decision in uh, Bilski, when uh, that comes down, is this something that the court would wait to see what the Supreme Court has to say, or would they make a decision beforehand and then uh, worry about it later? Um, I gave a talk about uh, – that's a very good question. I gave a talk about Bilski a couple months ago because uh, we had also contributed an amicus, uh, three amicus briefs in that case, one in the Federal Circuit – one to support the petition for cert, and then on the merits. Um, and I think the answer to your question is yes. I think if the judge is paying attention and he's smart, and by all um, uh, everything I hear he is, uh, he will probably wait for Bilski, because I think Bilski will say some things, even though that's about business method patents, uh, that will have an effect here. And where you see the intersection of Bilski and this case, uh, if you go back and read uh, the case that came down, I want to say about six months ago, called Prometheus. Maybe it was less than that. It was last fall. Uh, Prometheus versus uh, Mayo uh, Clinic. Um, that case is the intersection of Bilski and the Myriad case. And basically what the court 
the Federal Circuit did in that case is say that a, um, a method for diagnosing – I forget what the underlying condition was – but it was basically looking for a level of a certain chemical in your body and, and correlating that with uh, some condition. Uh, was that uh, patentable or not? And the way that the court analyzed that was under the Federal Circuit's Bilski test for method patents. Um, it was the machine or transformation test, which is the issue in Bilski. And the court said, well, there's a transformation going on here. Um, the claims that talk about administering a certain uh, therapy to the patient, that's transforming the human body. And the claims that talk about diagnosing the condition, uh, there was a transformation of the blood sample. You can look at the case. But it was basically using uh, the Bilski formula for uh, figuring out whether a personalized medicine invention uh, was eligible for patent law or not. So the Supreme Court uh, may very likely come out with some test for determining whether a method uh, is patent eligible or not, a uh, method for doing something. Uh, and um, the court in this case could uh, uh, use that to figure out what happens in this case. In fact, if I were the judge sitting on the case, that's exactly what I would do. I would wait until the Supreme Court rules on Bilski, which I'm betting won't be until June. Well, thank you. Thank you.